The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to this special Christmas episode of the Edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. We'll be looking back at the year in politics, asking why the kids aren't all right, discussing the genius of P.G. Woodhouse and learning how to put on a great Christmas play. Throughout the podcast, you'll be hearing from The Spectator's agony aunt, Dear Mary, and the special celebrity guests who have sought her advice in this year's Christmas issue. Up first, what a year in politics it has been. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has sacked the chairman of his Conservative Party, Nadim Zahawi. I'm now off. My gosh, I just said it out loud. There's no going back now. Nicola Sturgeon has been arrested in connection with a police investigation into the Scottish National Party's finances. Does anyone ever say, you know what, you've done a good job because everyone else has sat on their arse? HS2 is the ultimate example of the old consensus. Politics needs an update. We demand a people's house. We demand a people's house. David Cameron has just walked up the street and gone into 10 Downing Street. That doesn't mean we can never has been sacked, I'm just hearing. Uh, but I understand the feelings of, the, of these victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering. To make sense of it all, I'm joined by the editor of The Spectator, Fraser Nelson, Katie Balls, The Spectator's political editor, and Quentin Letts, sketch writer for The Daily Mail. Fraser, on last year's Christmas podcast at the end of 2022, we reflected on a year in which British politics seemed to be becoming less stable. One year on, do you think stability has been somewhat restored? Not really. If you look at where we are, the Tories are still about 17 points behind in the polls, um, exactly where they were this time last year. They, this time last year, there was a broad consensus of Conservatives that their aim was to finish 2023 about 10 points behind. And if they were 10 points behind, then the election wouldn't be winnable, it would be sort of contestable, as it were. Now, you don't hear them making the same point now, obviously. So we've had a, a year where Richie Sunak needed a lot of things to go right, because he wanted to say, look, I might not be the best campaigner, I've obviously I lost a election to Liz Truss, I might not be the most charismatic person, but I can deliver for you, so I want to speak through my achievements. This is going to be a year of achievement, and then you're going to see with your own eyes, etc. He came up with his five pledges in, in January as sort of promissory notes to the electorate. Hasn't he since come up with some more pledges? Well, yeah, because the five pledges, none, none of them worked out. Well, the only one, having inflation, which, by the way, was forecast to happen even under Boris. But stuff like economic growth, you know, the economy didn't really grow. In fact, the growth almost, the recovery stopped pretty much from the post-COVID bounce when he took over. Debt has not gone down, it's gone up a lot. It's going from 2.3 to 3 trillion pounds, etc. So he doesn't have very much to show for him. Stop the boats. We know what a debacle that's been with the Rwanda legislation. So he has come up with more pledges, but I don't really think that they're landing. So I think he is um, having more trouble keeping his party together. 
and is very ill close this year. Now, of course, he, he would say that he has achieved quite a lot. Look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, and, there, and he would credit himself with halving inflation because of a tight public pay settlements, etc., etc. I'm not quite sure that is a very widely shared view. Katie, you interviewed uh, the Prime Minister for the Christmas issue, and he seemed very keen to defend his record. Can you take us through the sort of the salient points of that interview? I think, yeah, he just listened to everything Fraser said and then uh, imagined the opposite <laughs> in terms of the takes on the five priorities and you pretty much have the interview um, when it comes to Rishi Sunak's achievements. As Fraser says, it's not a view I think that many in his party share, but Rishi Sunak was very keen to say, you know, looking back to a year before when we last spoke and when he was about to set out these priorities, that he thought he had made progress. At one point, it was almost um, so tiggerish in talking about his progress, so on stopping the boats. He was saying, you know, if, you, if you'd come and told me 12 months ago that we'd had a situation where, you know, boat crossings would be down a third on where they were the year before, you would have said, what are you smoking? Um, now, of course, no one will uh, soon be smoking if uh, Rishi Sunak gets to over his policy. Um, but I think he was very keen to stress the point that on things like inflation and of course he he was arguing you know debt is falling and so forth but I think on the economic pledges he was trying to say he had made quite good progress there on the boats he was saying he had made good progress he didn't really talk about NHS waiting lists which I think tells you enough and obviously the strikes have massively impacted that because then number 10 I think they think you know they made a choice and that was pay restraint and that has impacted that pledge so you hear less I suppose to go back to your question to Fraser, if I may, in terms of are we in a more stable place? I think the Tories' electoral prospects continue to look completely dire going into next year. But I say this after probably a week in which it has felt a little bit more like the Brexit era. But I do think this year has been more stable for politics. We have had a situation where, you know, as a political editor, I'm not waking up thinking how many letters are in. You know, the number of days we've spoken about letters going to Graham Brady or no confidence letters. In the past week, quite high. But I would say generally for the 365 days, very low. And therefore, if you're looking, I suppose, at what Rishi Sunak can say for, as an achievement, I think probably his biggest achievement is, has been largely, for the most part, the year calming his party down, making it seem like less of a hot mess than it seemed the year before. Of course, in the past, you know, you can say that's the least the public should expect from a gov- governing party, but it has been a change. Um, the problem is it felt this week as so though perhaps that's flaring up again and we could get more of that going into the next year. And Quentin, this year has had its fair share of fairly meaty political moments. We've had Nicola Sturgeon was arrested, Boris Johnson oh, left yes. Parliament... And David Cameron returned. What's what's been your kind of standout moment from the year? Well, what strikes me about it, and I'm a little bit more optimistic than these uh, these, these terrible gloomers, <laughs> uh, is that Sunak himself is wonderfully resilient. And it's maybe because he's got he's quite skinny and he's not carrying too much weight and uh, he's quite a fit, <laughs> he's quite a fit little fellow. But he is he does have extraordinary bounce back capacity. Uh, there was a little moment after the Supreme Court ruling and another one later on on the small boats stuff when he lost his temper, which I quite liked, actually. I want to see more of that temper. I want to see a little, a little bit more of that electricity surging through his tight underpants. But, you know, on the whole, I think the, the people around him seem more hygienic than the people did in the Johnson era. There seems to be, although I don't like technocrats, there is a certain merit in technocratic 
um, capacity, which I think uh, Downing Street has a little bit more of. And, you know, if you think about life, things could be a heck of a lot worse. <laughs> we could be living in Ukraine. We could be living in China. We could be in Russia. We could be in the United States, if you're talking about political stability. And we could be in France. And I think, you know, we're so good at talking ourselves down in this country. You know, we're still clinging on to the surface of the earth. And we are still revolving. <laughs> That's a nice optimistic note, Quentin. And Fraser, looking ahead to next year with the election, I mean, do you think the Tories are doomed? Or do you think there's a way for them to sort of pull things together and, and triumph? I've given up predictions ever since. I look back to 2015, where I remember there was an opinion poll saying that Cameron had a 0.1% chance of a majority. He pulled through. And that was. Uh, and then you look back about Trump being elected. I remember, Lara, when we were covering that um, election, you know, we were also, we commissioned a Trump wins cover, but none of us thought we'd ever see the light of day uh, because Hillary Clinton was given by Yale University a 99% chance of victory. And, um, and that, you know, so anytime you think you're thinking, oh, I think this is absolutely bound to happen, you have to look back at how much you've been wrong-footed in recent years and remember that we are still living in thrillingly unpredictable times for politics. Uh, to, to, to resist the feeling that you think the die is in any way cast. And also, there is this sort of project apocalypse that the establishment is determined that the Conservatives will not get back in. They spread as much gloom as possible, and this applies also to the, the, the public sector unions who are doing their damnness to make life a misery. There is a sort of determination among the great and the good uh, that things have never been worse and that the Conservatives are all to blame. And uh, I think that the public might see through that. Well, we've got a, a leader, Quentin, you're holding a Christmas special in your hands there. Our leading article informs the readers that this was actually, contrary to what they might think, the best year in human history <laughs> that we've just had. So when writing that, of course, you know, I, I was, when the sub-editors were going through it, you could hear the, the noises of agony. This can't be true. Because people instinctively do not believe that things are going right, because all we hear are things going wrong. Now, of course, as journalists, it's our role to point out things going wrong. You can't have a magazine pointing out everything that's going right. But you think you're quite right right to say that if you had to, if to pick any time to be alive in this country, you'd probably pick about now. Um, you wouldn't pick 10 years ago, you wouldn't pick the 1960s, you know. And that is something that, that we do lose sight of, because we're always, mankind progresses by always focusing on what you can achieve, and democracies are always self -critical. And one of the reasons, actually, things are feel, to me, better than everyone is saying, is that Parliament itself matters much more now than it did before Brexit. And with the uh, the small boats stuff, one of the fr slight frustrations has been that, you know, the, the lawyers are getting in the way. But you do get a sense that the votes matter much more than they did when we were when we were still in the EU. It all seemed slightly peripheral. But now that place actually matters much. It's throbbing. It's throbbing away like a, a working engine much more than it used to. And Katie, the, the Labour Party have sustained a double-digit lead in the polls throughout the year. I mean, have we learnt much more about Keir Starmer, the man who could be Prime Minister next year? I think we've learnt a bit more. I think when you're thinking about that question of, you know, do the Tories have any chance of turning things around? Probably the greatest hope for the Tories is just that we don't know everything about Keir Starmer. And when Labour are put under pressure on policies and so forth, they do seem to be quite rattled sometimes. And I don't think they're used to and they're trying to prepare for it but they're you know what they're worried about is the ferocity of the Tory election machine switching into gear 
Tories potentially, it could happen, stopping fighting one another and actually focusing on fighting Labour in an election campaign. And you had Morgan McSweeney, who is Keir Starmer's most senior aide at Shadow Cabinet, showing you know, that the other week these moving graphs of six different elections, a couple of which were in the UK, to Fraser's point. You know, also had uh, you know, a New Zealand election campaign where you have had a consistent 20-point or huge lead for one party. And then the short campaign starts. And in fact, all the graphs just went plunged. And it was a reminder that, you know, things can look very certain, but in the heat of a campaign, they can change drastically. Now, it looks hard for Rishi Sunak, but I think when it comes to Labour, there is an active choice at the moment not to release that much policy, because in the words of one advisor to Keir Starmer, if they do, either the Tories nick it because they think it's good, or they rubbish it for months on end. Now, that's also known as politics, but it means they don't feel very incentivized to. It's also the case, though, that when we get to that manifesto for Labour, it will be a pretty slim document because they think partly uh, so it's bomb-proof from Tory attacks, partly because there's not much money at all. Um, They're not going to be announcing that much in terms of policy. So I think when it comes to what Prime Minister Keir Starmer would look like, which by now looks like far the most likely scenario, a lot of it we probably wouldn't know until he was there, but I think it is quite clear from this year that he can be ruthless when he wants to be. His team love to say he't ruthless, but I think we you know so we don't need quite to the line, but I do think there is something in the way that you know he obviously I think another way of looking at the ruthlessness is he is happy to change his view and his comments depending on what is advantageous to him in the political situation and it'd be interesting how that transfers in office because he's very keen to shake off many of the things he said early on now he's playing to the right what's going to work well when he's prime minister if he was really ruthless then he would sack Yvette Cooper. She is such a vote treader, and she's been unable, I think, to capitalise on the immigration thing as she might have done. And the absence of policies is going to tell eventually. You can't just really go into a general election with a two-page manifesto, uh, much though the public have become disenchanted by promises. I think they're going to have to give some idea of how they're going to what they're going to do in government. It just doesn't work otherwise. And Fraser, just looking abroad briefly, obviously this year has also been dominated by the war in Ukraine and um, and what's going on in in the Middle East. How do you think both parties have responded to those challenges? Well, with Ukraine, I think Britain has stayed relatively steadfast in its support. America is wobbling as as much of Europe, but but not Britain. Of course, we're relatively small contributors, so it doesn't really help Ukraine. And the the, the hoped-for counter-offensive narrative this year, like we'd hoped to celebrate this year with some great big push. That just didn't happen. So it's looking a lot more bleak now. I think Keir Starmer has actually handled... I think the best thing he's done this year is not to back down in refusing to call for a ceasefire. The more you see nutters screaming at him, the more you see the, the craziest Labour MPs rise up against him, the more he looks sane and normal by comparison. When I was at the Labour Party conference this year, I was... Um, I wouldn't say stopped by it, but certainly got into conversation with lots of these basically pro-Hamas nutters. And I did think to myself, and not so many years ago, they were actually inside the conference running the show, rather than outside protesting against it. And I think that has probably been the best single thing for Starmer. He might it might not feel like that way to him, because, of course, they're worried about losing votes in Muslim constituencies, etc. But to the average voter, this he does come across as somebody who has stayed firm in this position of not many others. And just finally, Quentin, in the Christmas issue, you write your, I think it's 48-point guide for the Tories about how they might... How they might prosper next year. Was it 48? Can I ask you just to pick 
perhaps one that you think is the best bit of advice and then Katie and Fraser I'm also going to ask you for your top tip for the Tories for next year uh, well uh, there are various of them but uh, the, the main one because it's it's timely is to abandon the New Year's message from the Prime Minister uh, and also I mean because Sir Edward Davy who he uh, will do one as well, and so will Sir Keir Starmer. But the, the politicians feel they have to talk to us the whole time. They should leave us alone. Rishi Sunak should go and read novels in the Garden of Downing Street. He should talk less. He should appear less. He should become more remote, more Olympian, and more civilised. Well, we know from Katie's interview that he's reading Jilly Cooper. So well, good for him. <laughs> Terrific. And Jilly is a great, uh, sort of, a very buoyant read. Uh, I suppose my tip would be maybe they should not use WhatsApp as much because I think when we think about the Tory psychodrama, that all Tory WhatsApp group has become, you know, it's great for me. I shouldn't be giving this advice because I love the all Tory WhatsApp group. If you ever need a little bit of colour for a column intro or just some way to pass the day when you're trying to reach a word count, it's great to get a few screen grabs. Um, But in terms of their own future going forward, I think it's just another symptom of a Tory party that often, you know, wants to give addresses to the media on their individual views as opposed to working as a block. And if they somehow not to sound like a Miss World contestant, could, you know, put their, you know, attack weapons down on each other, they might start to see the polls move a bit. I'm tempted to say that he should read The Spectator more closely <laughs> than he does because there's very wise advice every week. Apparently he does read it. Well, he doesn't act on it, does he? <laughs> well... I know. I would. My non-fluent answer to that would be to say that he should uh, focus more on welfare reform, which I think is the biggest threat the country faces. The sheer numbers of people being written off into the system is a scandal, but one that isn't very much articulated. I do think Labour dare follow him into his territory. So if he manages to persuade people, A, this is a problem, that B, the Conservatives can solve it, and only the Conservatives can solve it, he would give an answer to a very, right now, difficult-to-answer question, which is what would they do significantly better than Labour? Right now, he can't really say we'd cut your taxes, but we have the highest taxes since the war. They're running out of ways that they can say that make a palpable difference. I think this could be one. Well, Fraser, Katie and Quentin, thank you very much for joining. From Joanna Lumley. What would you consider an acceptably tiny present for people who have everything and say they want nothing for Christmas? I can't bear not giving anything, but maybe a paperback or a bar of soap might be too small. I'm useless at baking, so shall not attempt any home-baked goods, and my embroidery skills are pretty shabby, so I shall not be able to initial a handkerchief. You always supply such wonderful solutions to problems... So please help me, Mary, in my hour of need. I suppose helium balloons are out of the question. Helium balloons are a charming idea, but can terrify dogs. Instead, give an exquisitely wrapped mini-package of a sheet of first-class stamps. Perhaps the special edition called River Wildlife? You can buy 25 of these for £31.25. pence. Every civilised person needs stamps, and yet they are so difficult to remember to buy. Next. The story that has dominated the pages of The Spectator in the latter half of this year is, of course, the conflict in Gaza. Writing in the Christmas issue, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institute and Bloomberg Opinion columnist Neil Ferguson discusses the history of generational divides when it comes to geopolitical conflicts. 
His piece was partly inspired by a column that Douglas Murray wrote earlier for The Spectator this year when he wrote about the generational divide in the Anglosphere when it comes to support for either Israel or Palestine. They both join me now. Neil, could you tell us why you wanted to respond to Douglas's article? And could you take us through the historical comparison that you make uh, in the piece and what insight that lends? Well, I think Douglas and I would agree that there's a problem with what the Americans called Generation Z. That's broadly speaking, the people in college, in university right now, circa, you know, 18 to 22. And there's been a huge shift in in the attitudes of that generation, or maybe it'd be more accurate to say that they have very different political views from the millennials, who are a little bit older. And I think on that issue, Douglas and I have very similar concerns. But as I read a piece that that Douglas wrote along the lines of uh, the kids are not all right, I thought maybe it's because I'm approaching 60. I should check that this isn't just what you think about the younger generation as you're approaching 60. So I went and refreshed my memory about the rather good article that Martin Keedle did many years ago about the king and country debate in 1933, which elicited ferocious fulminations by people about the same age as me at that time, along the lines of, you have besmirched the reputation of a great university. Uh, The Daily Telegraph uh, ran a ferocious letter, which turned out to be written by one of their leader writers. And I thought to myself, oh no, am I I just him? Am I just a version (laughs) of him? And so I think the real point of the piece is that in 1933, although that vote happened, the people who were involved were not, as the fulminating Telegraph leader writer thought, a bunch of pacifist, pinko, weirdo traitors. Because fast forward even less than six years, just fast forward five years, and a very similar motion was roundly defeated with uh, the same star speaker on the pacifist side. So sentiment shifted pretty fast in the course of the 1930s. And the people who had voted for that motion of, that they would not fight for king and country mostly did, insofar as they were able to, including Michael Foote, the future Labour leader, who really was a leftist at the time, but by 1938-39 was a ferocious anti-appeaser. Mm. And, but you end your piece with this question of, if, it, if push really came to shove today, would the young of today sort of step up in the way that they, they did when the war came in in, in, in the 1930s? And do you seem to suggest that you think they probably wouldn't? Well, I'd love to get Douglas's thoughts on this. My views may be coloured by spending most of the last 20 years in the United States, where sentiment on the university campuses, I think, is quite a lot further to the woke extreme than it is here. Although on the specific issue of Israel and the Palestinians, I don't think there's a huge difference, if anything. In fact, the British Generation Z may, may be more pro-Palestinian. I think the question you have to ask is, what if Hamas launched terrorist attacks on British soil, or for that matter, on American soil? Well, let's focus on the UK as we're having this conversation in London. If there were terrorist attacks comparable to what we saw in Israel on October the 7th 
in and around London, how would young people react? Would they say, well, the Palestinians have a just cause and, you know, from, from the river to the sea, maybe the river's the Thames, maybe. maybe. <laughs> I believe there's quite a lot of confusion amongst young people about which river they are, in fact, chanting yeah. about. But I don't know, Douglas, what do you, what do you think? I, I slightly, I must say, I have more confidence, and maybe this is typical of somebody my age, I have more confidence in the generation of 1933 than the young generation of 2023. Well, first of all, uh, I'm the the king and country debate of 1933 is, of course, it's a very useful reference point. And as Neil points out, I mean, one of the th- things about it is that people remember this notorious vote. And quite often the people who remember it forget that precisely the people who walked through the uh, not fighting for king and country lobby that night uh, took up arms six years later. So it's a it's a salutary moment for precisely that reason. And actually, last year when Russia invaded Ukraine, I remember that there was a, well, you know, we're two years into the war now, aren't we? But I remember there was, there was shortly after the, the invasion, there was a poll in the United States saying to Americans, would, would you stay and fight if America was invaded in the same way that Ukraine has been invaded by the Russians? And actually, the king and country debate came to my mind then as well, because actually, it was only just a majority of Americans who said that they would indeed stay and fight if their country was invaded in this way. And among Democrat voters, a majority said that they wouldn't. Now, I mean, in reality, if America was to be invaded by a foreign power, would it, would more than half the population hot-foot it to Canada, assuming that Canada wasn't the invader? We never know. But... I thought back then when that poll came out, to say shortly after the invasion of Ukraine, it would be strange if very many, let alone an overwhelming majority of Americans, any longer thought that they should risk laying down their life for their country. Since they have been told for more than a generation that their country is rotten from the beginning onwards. I mean, if you live in a society, and both Neil and I have spent significant amounts of time in the United States, if you live in a society, so so we both know this isn't an overstatement, that claims that your founding fathers were all simply slave owners and bigots and racists because they didn't share the views we have in the 2020s about various things, that the whole of the United States is on stolen land, that white people are all colonizers, and that essentially America has done nothing good. Why the hell would you give your life up for this entity? I mean, it'd be an insane thing to do. Uh, so I quite often think back to this question. As for the, 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 the thing about the reactions to the Israel-Palestinian issue and the Israel-Hamas war that's going on at the moment, yes, as I pointed out recently in the magazine, it was very striking to me that in the immediate aftermath of Hamas's atrocities against the Israeli public on 7th October, Ipsos Mori um, carried out a poll. And what was striking about it was that among 18 to 34-year-olds in Britain, 23% wanted Britain to support the Palestinians and just 7% wanted uh, Britain to support the Israelis. Now, you have to, of course, wonder what they mean by the Palestinians in this situation, since it wasn't the Palestinians who launched the war against Israel, it was Hamas. So this is even more concerning. But what's interesting is the generational divide, because if you go up to the 55 to 75-year-old age bracket, 22% of people in that age bracket want Britain to support Israel, and just 4% the Palestinians. So... What's interesting about that is that there clearly is, there's 
demonstrably a generational divide in in what I regard as being key civilizational attitudes at the moment. Well, Douglas, I'd love to ask you, since you are in Israel at the moment, um, from the conversations that you've had, has that come across that people are rather dismayed at the reaction of a, a lot of uh, institutions in the West? It's, it's more than dismay. It's um, shock, amazement, sadness, uh, and deep concern. I, I was this morning again with the families of some of the hostages, and one young man in his 20s who lost a lot of his family uh, has... Uh, it, some of his family include the baby of nine months old, who now is still alive, I hope he is, would be 11 months old. Um, that's one of his relatives, the Bibas family. And, uh, you know, he said to me, he said he went to Dublin the other week to meet, among other things, Leo Varadka, who, of course, described one of the hostages as having simply gone missing. And he said that when he was in Dublin, he saw the posters of the Hamas hostages in Dublin including his relatives, including this photograph of a nine-month-year-old baby, ripped down. Can anyone imagine what it feels like for a culture to have nine-month-year-old babies from your country abducted, their families slaughtered in front of them, and for missing posters in Western cities like Dublin to be ripped down? The lack of empathy is astonishing. To most Israeli people. The lack of awareness of what Israel is facing, the lack of sympathy with people like the young, I was at the last reunion of the Nova Party survivors last night, and you still speak to them and you think, I know people exactly like you in America and exactly like you in Britain and every other country. Why aren't those people in those other countries showing the kind of solidarity you would expect to their contemporaries when they face a horror of an unimaginable kind. And as for the university presence, I'll just say very quickly, everybody in Israel knows what any the same exercise any of us could do with the three reprehensible presidents of American in, uh, educational institutions. Try it out with anyone else. If they had been asked is it acceptable to call for the elimination of all black people or all gay people? None of those women would have missed a beat before they condemned it. But Jews, ah, context, context. Yes. Well, Neil, I would love to ask uh, your opinion on, on the incident that Douglas is, is referring to. And, and um, where has this come from in, in university cultures? It's a great question. I spent part of my career uh, teaching the history of Western civilization at Harvard University, and it doesn't seem that I had much impact. Uh, <laughs> or perhaps I did, uh, and I should have kept doing it, uh, and the latest batch of students have, have missed out. I think it's interesting that the never-again narrative about the Holocaust, the basic argument that we must learn from German history because that's just the worst thing that's ever happened in modernity, has been superseded by the argument that Douglas alluded to, that we need to understand Western history as a history of white supremacy, enslavement, etc., and nothing good came of it. That's been a great victory for the left, who began peddling this narrative many years ago. This, this was a narrative in which every aspect of Western expansion was bad. There could be no redeeming 
feature to it. And even when Westerners took an interest in Eastern civilization, they were just uh, engaged in Orientalism, as Edward Seed's hugely influential argument. Well, that, that won, and the efforts of of historians like myself to try to draw meaningful lessons from the Nazi disaster, well, we just lost. I think that's part of the answer. I think there's a broader story to be told here and that the testimony uh, of the two presidents and one former president as it stands, let's hope it'll be three former presidents soon, but the testimony illustrated the massive hypocrisy at the heart of American elite university governance. Uh, Douglas got this right. I mean, they discovered the First Amendment pretty recently. I think they were briefed about it for the first time prior to those hearings. Uh, and it was like, oh, really? What, you can say that stuff? And it's okay? Yeah, that, that's okay, as long as you don't actually carry out genocide. Okay, got it. So it's just as long as it doesn't actually lead to conduct. Well, of course, as Douglas pointed out, that this this is the very opposite of the approach that these same people took to a whole range of issues of alleged uh, an actual bigotry over the past 20 years, where the very same people who had discovered the First Amendment uh, last week in their entire careers had done their very best to make sure that any speech that could be constituted or could be con- uh, construed as racist was not only shut down, but anybody who was associated would be cancelled. So this was a huge uh, and wholly incredible vault fast. The issue is how universities are run. And over time, certainly over the 20 years that I've been working in American universities, there has been a marked shift in the nature of university governance because more and more academics and academic administrators, of which there's a vast army, came to the view that, no, there should be no separation between politics and scholarship. Scholarship should be politics. And the point of being a university president was to engage in activism. That was Claudine Gay's message to the Harvard faculty in 2020 when she was the dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, a very powerful position at Harvard, inspired by uh, the George Floyd murder and the subsequent Black Lives Matter protests. So they were all in on that issue. Interestingly, Douglas, they were also all in on Ukraine until they lost interest in it and now pay no attention to it. Uh, But what's fascinating is that when it was an attack on Israel, when Jews were being massacred, they were suddenly not all in. Why? And I think the only way of explaining that is that over time, a constituency evolved on most university campuses. There was an unholy alliance between the progressive, so-called progressive woke left and the Islamists who had very successfully established themselves at institutions like Harvard. And that coalition became progressively more powerful than the fairly well-established constituency of, of Jewish professors and Jewish students. And when the crunch came this year, after October the 7th, the Jewish professors, the Jewish students, and the Jewish alumni discovered to their horror what some of us had been warning about for years, that they'd been completely displaced in terms of uh, the power structure of the university by a new generation, an unholy alliance, as I said, of the woke and the Islamists. Mm. Well, if I could add to that, I completely agree with what Neil just said, but let me add one other thing to it. Of course, this, this aspect of it, which is that the job of us today is to stand in judgment upon the past. Uh, that is one of the extraordinary presumptions that seems to me to have prevailed in academia and, and therefore the wider culture for a long time now. That, you know, if you want to, for instance, study Shakespeare uh, at uh, 
postgraduate level, you could only get a, a position to do that, funding to do that at an Ivy League university, or indeed, I think even at Oxbridge or the top Russell Group universities in the UK, if you were going to, for instance, problematize Shakespeare, if you were going to look at him through a post-colonial lens, if you were to use a dollop of Edward Said still, I mean, I'm amazed still after all the debunking, but apparently so, uh, and uh, some post-colonialism, maybe a, a bit of cis-heteronormativity, um, uh, maybe looking at problematizing sex and gender in Shakespeare. If you just wanted to study Shakespeare, it's quite hard to get a grant for that. And all of this, all of this, you see, flows from the same thing, which is that we have the right to stand in judgment on the past, even on a figure like Shakespeare. And here's the thing, here's the great mistake of our era. Sometimes the past stands as judge over us. Sometimes Shakespeare judges us and he finds us wanting, or we should find ourselves wanting. Sometimes we should look at the past and instead of saying, why did those people not know what I know now, should think, what is it that I don't know now? But yes, I think everything starts from this presumption that you, the young person, you, the student, know something and have the right to judge. Uh, Neil, just, just finally, to move from the, the past and to the future, you wrote an extremely good cover piece uh, for The Spectator earlier this year in which you gave a very convincing argument as to why Donald Trump is odds-on favourite to win, firstly to get the Republican nomination and then to win the presidential US election. Uh, just to bring everything back to the conflicts both in Israel and in Ukraine, if a second Trump presidency is going to be the the most probable outcome, how do you think that might change both of those conflicts? Well, that that has to be the base case on the on the uh, on the basis of current polling, where Trump is ahead in in the key swing states ahead of Biden, and assuming it's a rerun of twenty twenty. And assuming that the economy is indeed slowing, if not entering recession, uh, you'd have to put your money on, on Donald Trump right now. After all, the primaries don't happen at Harvard or Yale. They, they happen in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire. And in Iowa and New Hampshire, a lot, a lot of primary voters look at this stuff. They look at what's going on in, in these hearings. And they hear from the president of Harvard. And it only reinforces their sense that Trump is right about just about everything. And the, and the liberal elite is completely decadent and corrupt and needs to be swept away. So, you know, well done, university presidents. You, you probably gave Trump a helping hand in those primaries <laughs> just by, by your uh, your your dreadful mumblings and weasel words. I think the implications are very mixed if Trump wins. It's pretty bad news for Ukraine, though Ukraine's already in trouble under Biden, who, who looks as if he can't get the votes for more funding from the US. But it's hard to believe that Donald Trump would up support for Ukraine, given his comments on that country in in the past, uh, it's very much better news for Israel because the mess in Israel is really a function of the Biden administration's crazy attempt to resuscitate 
the Obama-era nuclear deal with Iran, which was basically dead, and they thought they could bring it alive like the Monty Python Norwegian Blue Parrot, and they failed utterly. All they achieved was that they emboldened the Iranians, allowed them more economic breathing space. The money went straight to their proxies, including Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, and here we are. So Trump definitely turns that off. Uh, the Iranians will be under much more pressure if Trump is re-elected, and the Abraham Accords will revert to being the core strategy of the United States. The Saudi-Israel rapprochement will be resumed. That's all clear. The, the bit you didn't ask me about is what does it mean for U.S.-China relations? Because there's another uh, shoe that could still fall between now and the election. That's Taiwan. Now, Trump is, is certainly ambivalent on that issue, although he brought about the transformation of American attitudes towards China as president. He never seemed too committed to, uh, to Taiwan, judging by John Bolton's memoir anyway. So I'm a little uncertain as to what it would mean for US-China relations. But I think for the Middle East, it would mean a return to a far more successful policy of the Trump administration. And from an Israeli point of view, and actually, I think from an Arab point of view, Trump's re-election would be quite welcome. Neil and Douglas, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank My you. pleasure. Dear Mary, I would be grateful for advice on how to avoid screaming at cyclists in Hyde Park who ignore the no-cycling lanes as they run down innocents trying to enjoy a stroll, play with their dogs and children, or just generally try to stay alive. If I continue to hurl abuse at these thoughtless people, my voice will disappear and I will be unable to remain in my present profession. Happy Christmas, Nigel Havers. You will have seen the occasional hobby cyclist with high-vis folding lollipop safety flags projecting from their wheels to aggress motorists who might invade their space. Play the offenders at their own game by customising a walking gilet to accommodate a pair of these flags to be attached to your own waist while walking. They will give you a buffer zone of approximately 12 inches on either side. Next, in the Christmas magazine this year, Charles Moore discusses the divine comedy of P.G. Woodhouse, and he takes a close look at some of the various literary and biblical references contained within the Code of the Worcesters. To talk further about P.G. Woodhouse, Charles joins me now alongside the evolutionary biologist and author Richard Dawkins, who is also a big P.G. Woodhouse fan. So, Charles... First of all, could you start by telling us a little bit about your, your own affection for Woodhouse and perhaps when you remember first reading him? I think I first read Woodhouse at prep school. I expect I was nine or ten. He was pretty popular with the boys then. And what I loved immediately was, I think, what I love still, which is the verbal dexterity, the wit, and the creation of a of perfectly formed world. But there's a sub-point there, which is that it was also sort of familiar and that goes to the, a lot of the way the jokes are made and the literary references because they were very much the literary and biblical references of the education at the time and so I felt as you entered this uh, perfectly formed world you sort of knew it already and yes it was paradise it wasn't a real world of course. And do you think a certain type of education is therefore essential to understanding P.G. Woodhouse? I think it does help um I think Woodhouse is intrinsically funny at many levels, but part of the joke and part of the verbal skill is his brilliant mixture, which these references uh, encapsulate, 
between the sort of colloquial and deliberately stupid language of Bertie Wooster in particular and the grand literary and biblical traditions with which his readers were familiar. So it's the it's the clash between those two forms of diction, those two ways of talking, which is highly comic. Richard, you, you are also a huge fan of P.G. Woodhouse. Do you remember when you first read his works? I remember very well, yes. It also, I was at prep school and uh, the headmaster came in and sat on somebody's bed and he noticed a book on a bookshelf in the dormitory, he picked it up and said, do you boys love Jeeves? And we said, we don't know. We never heard of him. So he read us a story. It was the Great Sermon Handicap. Ah, yes. Absolutely enchanted. This was the the story about how Bertie and a lot of his young friends were marooned in the country reading for an exam with the local vicar. And they placed bets on the which of the local vicars would preach the longest sermon on a particular Sunday. And all the sort of horse racing jargon that they used was just wonderful about nobbling the favourite and coughing in his stable all night and that kind of thing. So that was my first introduction. And I immediately set about reading well, I read about just about everything, certainly all of Jeeves and certainly all of Blanding's. And I absolutely adore it. I agree with what Charles Moore has said about the, well, the, the, the juxtaposition of, the, of, of Bertie's language and Jeeves's uh, more cultivated language. I'm particularly captivated by the metaphors, which are extreme in a kind of ridiculous way. He looked like a man who, stooping to pluck a nosegay of wildflowers on a railway line, is struck in the small of the back by the Cornish Express. <laughs> um, a family row, when aunt calls to aunt like mastodons bellowing across the primeval swamp. There's a kind of exaggeration there, which is just perfect. It was one of those still evenings you get in the summer when you can hear a snail clear its throat a mile away. All that kind of thing, hyperbole in the metaphors, which makes them extremely funny. Also, the, um, uh, the, the similar thing, but it, it comes in with the literary comparison in particular, which uh, Bertie often attributes to Jeeves, though in fact it's Shakespeare or whatever. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and um, uh, so, for example, it says, um, full many a glorious morning have I seen scatter the mountain tops with sovereign eye and turn into a rather af rather nasty afternoon that's the sort of that that's that's the way it works that's the way the joke works and very effective it is but you do have to pick up the reference at least a bit um, you may not actually quite be able to source it in your mind but you can you need to hear that literal biblical echo for the full humor to work yes what one of Jesus' little things it's, it's wonderful it, it, yes one of Jesus exactly one of Jesus' little things um and I don't know if you agree, Richard, but I think the um, the familiarity with the world, even though Woodhouse's world is fantastical. So, for example, you mentioned the Great Sermon Handicap. We boys of that generation would have been familiar with boring sermons, uh, which we were compelled to hear, and their character. And similarly, another thing that happens quite often in in uh, the stories is that Bertie or someone, Gussie, has to address a prize giving at a school. And that, of course, is also a thing we're very, we were very familiar with those sort of very formal prize givings. And one time Bertie has to address a, a prize giving and he absolutely can't think, girls school, I think, and he absolutely can't think of anything to say. And he says, did you know the amazing fact that um, 
If you stand opposite Romano's in the Strand, you can see the clock on the law courts. And um, I actually tested this once um, because um, Romano's in the Strand is what is now Stanley Gibbons, the stamp seller. And I stood exactly in where I was told to by Bertie. And it's absolutely true. <laughs> and it is remarkable because it, you have to look past uh, St Mary's in the Strand um, and I think St Clement Danes in order to see the law clock, but you can, the law court clock, but you can. Similar <laughs> one where Monty Bodkin is is guest ed, is is editing. He's deputy editor of Tiny Tots. Yeah, yes, mm, and he mm. says something like, um, "You can bet you can win a lot of money by betting somebody that, that a bottle of whiskey holds more than it's well, whatever it's supposed to." And you you fill the bottle and then you turn it over and fill the fill the indentation at the bottom with 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 whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> he gets the sack for this. <laughs> Much the same as Bertie's addressed to the girls' school. That that one you quote, by the way, is the only time when Jeeves does the narrating. Ah, yes, I'd forgotten you're not, that. You're not told yes. at the beginning that it's Jeeves. You have to catch on to the fact that it's Jeeves doing the narrating rather than Bertie. You're quite right. And it's a brilliant device that Bertie does do the narrating because it, it, because he's stupid, but actually he's not. Because he couldn't narrate it like that if he were. No, um, and um, this also interests me in terms of his literary and biblical references because they are in his culture. He jumbles them and can't remember them and attributes them to properly and, and attributes them to Jeeve. But actually, they are in his mind all the time, aren't they? They are echoing in his mind, and they do help to form his expression. It's very cleverly done. Yes, it is. He's not as stupid as as. <laughs> And Richard, one of the points that Charles makes is that this type of humour that relies heavily on literary references is slightly at risk of dying out these days. W- would you agree with that? Well, yes. I mean, it is it is a bygone era. And I suppose it's probably true that I'm not sure whether young people will take the illusions that you have to take in order to appreciate it. What do you think, Charles? I mean, do, do, do I think you... it is a problem, yes. Um, I think he's still very enjoyable because the... The verbal dexterity is apparent to any reader and the absurdity of the situations is apparent. But that particular type of joke does require picking up some reference and young people will tend not to because they're, I would say, to be brutal, less well-educated. And there's something else there too, which I think that wit, humour, is much less concerned with verbal wit than it used to be. And therefore the whole idea of these type of jokes is actually rather out. And what you see now in most comedy is often sort of um, people shouting at one another or, or stand-ups shouting. And there's a sort of extremity of humour uh, rather than something more careful and exact. So I often notice verbal jokes, not just literary references, but v- clever verbal jokes in general, often missed by audiences now. It can be quite slow in a theatre, and it would not have been at one stage. It, it happens, I've noticed, for example, with Noel Coward would be another example. Yes, you could be right. I hadn't thought of it like that. I mean... There are some things which I think anybody could take, like Honoria Glossop is one of those robust, dynamic girls with the muscles of a welterweight and a laugh like a squadron of cavalry charging over a tin bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that would would pass. (laughs) Though probably someone would object to the um, objectification of Honoria Glossop. Ah, yes, that's right. (laughs) And Richard, you you yourself have actually tried writing a few Woodhouse parodies. How how was that, and was it a daunting prospect trying to do so? Surprisingly, not actually. I found it quite easy. I hope I did it all right. Um, I did. I did send it to Stephen Fry, and he seemed to 
appreciated. He's, of course, a great uh, Woodhouse aficionado and, and actor. Just on, uh, as an impartial observer, I do think Richard's two stories are brilliantly well done because he's ta- he's tackling big subjects. One's the existence of God and the other is the theory of evolution. And indeed, there's a relation between the two. And it's superbly done with, of course, Jeeves expounding. But as in the originals, Bertie is this funny mixture that I've described of being stupid and clever. So actually, he does pick up a lot of Jeeves's argument about the origin of species and other important and profound matters, doesn't he? It's very good. It's, it's kind of you to say so. Um, thank you. They're, they're, I think they're both reprinted in one of my books, I forget which, probably Science in the Soul. But what, what about the television adaptations? I haven't seen by any means all of them. When I was a boy, it was um, Ian Carmichael uh, and Dennis Price. I love that. And I, I thought it was that. tremendously good. Um, of course, I was only a boy, so you know maybe I'm missing something. But I thought they got both characters extremely well. And then I suppose the dominant one of more modern times was Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. And though I admire both those actors, I actually thought that was a little bit less successful. I, I, I felt that it might have been Stephen Fry, actually, as Jeeves, was a little too heavy or slow or something. I think you need... Obviously, Jeeves is sort of pompous because he uses perfect expression all the time. But to my mind, he should be a bit more of a sort of light-footed dancer than Stephen Fry was. And I somehow didn't quite... I mean, it certainly wasn't bad, and it was done by two men who clearly loved the subject, so that was very good. I, I, no, I, I disagree about that. I, th- I think Stephen Fry's Jeeves is very good. And um, w- what I didn't like about that production was the way they messed around with the stories. And, and, ah, yes. And, and it, that was truly annoying, because, because nobody can do it better than P.G. Woodhouse, and they... And they Stuck in all sorts of other stuff, which cross-dressing and things, which which are not in the books, and and which I found greatly irritating. It's a great feature of um, television and film that it can't leave well alone. I mean, it sometimes can't even leave well alone in its own genre. So, for example, there's an absolutely perfect healing comedy, The Lady Killers, which was remade quite recently. You know, why on earth would you do that? It wouldn't... Uh... <laughs> I, I actually haven't... Have, uh, I refuse to see the, the remake. But, but um, I tell you what's a very good production of P.G. Woodhouse is the Pauline Collins, John Alderton version of the Mulliner stories. You're quite right. I'd completely forgotten about that. I did see those many, many years ago. When was that? In the 80s or something? Not sure when it was, but they are wonderful. I mean, both yeah. the actors are yes, terrific. Yes. Pauline Collins as 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 various 1920s flappers is superb, and John Alderton as as various silly young men of the sort of Pongo Twistleton type, and they're beautifully done. And the stories are completely faithful to the original. The, the, the Mulliners of Hollywood, for example, where there's a an escaped gorilla, and the Mulliner compliments him on his English, and he says, "Oh well, Balliol, you know." <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another one where one of the where the, the local where the Mulliner is a nodder. His job is to attend editorial meetings with the big boss. And when the big boss says something, all the yes men have to say yes, and then all the nodders have to nod. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's still that really exists, of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And just to finish, can I ask you both for your favourite P.G. Woodhouse novel? If 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 that's not too difficult a question. Richard, what what would be your your pick if you could just choose one? Uncle Fred in the Springtime, which is one of the Blanding stories, 
with this wonderful character, the, the Earl of Ickenham. And it's a superb plot. It involves the Roderick Glossop. It involves imposters, all the usual Blandings things. I think I keep, well, I, there are so many, but I keep coming back to that as my very favourite. But it's a very hard choice to make. I think it would, would be The Code of the Worcesters, which is the one I've used to study the literary references in, in, in this Christmas oh, Vitator, yes. um, because it has the complete mastery of of, of plot and, and humour that all the best ones do. But it, it adds something, I think, because very gently it also contains politics, which is something that um, Wood has right, rightly shied away from. But the great Roderick Spode of the Black Shorts um, is a superb character. And he's actually much the best way of laughing at, at, at looking at British fascism, which never was, I mean, it was seriously nasty, but it never was serious, if you know what I mean. It never got anywhere. And I think it's just absolutely perfectly done in... Um, uh, by Woodhouse, and it's really him at the, the height of his, it's his sort of early maturity, and uh, it just comes to the most perfect end, in which, having started on the first page with a mangling of a Shakespearean quotation, uh, Bertie goes to sleep by mangling another one about sleep being, knitting up the ravel sleeve of care. Uh, yes, that, that Oswald Mosley's parody is, um, it gives the lie to the to the awful calumny of Woodhouse being a Hitler sympathiser, which... Um, yes, I mean, poor Earl Wood has just messed that up, didn't he? Because he gave that broadcast when he was held as a prisoner by the Germans, and that was considered to be a sort of um, extenuation of, the, of them in some way. It, it clearly wasn't. It was, But he didn't really understand the situation he was in, and he was made to pay a very, very high price for it. Yeah. Well, Richard and Charles, thank you very much for joining. Dear Mary, I hope you can help me. I have a beautiful granddaughter called Aria, who I look after every week. It's my favourite day of the week, without question. But come January, a beautiful grandson is due to make an arrival. I still have a rugby-playing six-foot-two, six-year-old son at home and a 30 and a 25-year-old, though they have flown the nest. I have now done nearly 31 years with hungry children in the house. Any advice for a wary cook who gets tempted to open a ready meal after decades of preparing hearty suppers and now seems to be starting all over again with no breaking canteen services? Thank you very much, Sharon. Humans are programmed to take for granted the provider of kitchen comforts. They only appreciate it retrospectively when it stops. Announce that everyone is still more than welcome but every Monday, for example, they can cook for themselves. The contrast will startle them into gratitude, which will enhance your own attitude towards the drudgery. And finally, who on earth would put on a village Christmas play? William Moore, for one, as well as Laurie Graham, who in the Christmas issue talks about her decision to once again take charge of her community's Christmas play. So it's also a struggle that Will knows all too well, having also written and starred in his own local village Christmas play this year. Laurie and Will join me now. So Laurie, you say in your piece that you've been somewhat dreading this year's play. Can you tell listeners why? Well, I have to say that I have a lot of form in this area of crime against theatre. I've been doing it for more than 20 years. So, you know, there's no fool like an old fool. And the year comes round, it gets to the summer, and I say yes, yet again. 
and the trouble with amateur dramatics, much as obviously I do love them, is the word amateur. You have to find people who will make a commitment and you have to find people who aren't sure they want to do it but are tempted. So the problem is not writing a show or even directing a show. It's just getting the thing together at the beginning, which I guess is the kind of producer. And am I right in thinking that you have written this year's play and you are directing it, is that I'm, right as well? I'm, I've written it, I always, I always write it, and I discovered quite early on in this bit of my career that I couldn't let someone else direct my work. <laughs> <laughs> and then I discovered, a bit like W.S. Gilbert, that I couldn't bear to sit in the audience and watch what happens for the performance. So then I had to write myself into each one. <laughs> so. so tell us about some of your previous plays. I'm, I'm intrigued to see what, what, you've, what you've written. Well, I, I started this when we were living in Italy. And I, did it, I started it really for the expat community where we were living. And so uh, we put on a, pro, a traditional British pantomime. And the first two years we did it, the Italians were extremely suspicious of it. But gradually <laughs> they started creeping into the back of performance. And by the time we'd done, I think I did six altogether, by the time we got to number three, four, they were asking to take part. So gradually, but these were all traditional pantomime stories, but gradually the cast became, well, more than 50% Italian. Well, you are in charge of the Etchingham Christmas play this year, and I know I that you've you've written it and I have, are yeah. directing it. Uh, so I've written it. My wife has is directing it, and uh, it's great to hear from someone like Laurie, who's done it for twenty years, because this is my first year directing it, and, and my, my wife's first year directing it. So we've taken control of it in a sort of Maoist coup. Um, <laughs> In the uh, Etchingham <laughs> Amateur Dramatic Circles. We were both in last year's show. Um, it was written by uh, an extremely well-loved member of the uh, the village uh, called Phil, who, who moved to Yorkshire at the beginning of this year. So there was this question of uh, how it was going to continue. And Hannah and I thought, um, my wife and I thought, uh, well, let's have a let's have a crack at it, and we're we're, we're really in, enjoying doing it. It's, it is it is really really fun. The Challenges that Laurie just mentioned about getting people together, they are real challenges because exactly as she says, clue is in the word amateur. And so getting people's time commitments is hard and, and, and uh, you know, and putting all the pieces together when there isn't a sort of professional apparatus is a challenge. But it is also just immensely fun because there is, I think, that community element to the whole thing that people enjoy and sort of pulling together with people you already know from village life is extremely nice and I hope it'll be a, be a fun show for everyone who comes to see it and without giving too much away I want to ask you both what your play is up so Laurie what's what's your yeah, play I just yeah. I just first of all have to say husband and wife writer director team respect <laughs> well Laurie, actually so this is this is quite fun for us because uh, my wife and I met doing student theatre at university uh, where she used to direct me in shows then as well and uh and so because uh, I'm also in, the, I'm yeah, also in yeah, the play. I'm in the show as well as writing it. So my wife is directing me <laughs> in the play, which I have written. And I suppose this could, in another universe, end in a horrible sort of marital strife. But we're actually quite used to it because of coming from a student theatre <laughs> background. And it's quite nice, actually, all these years after we left university and you know went away, got married, and moved on with our lives. And this is the first play we've done together since 
all those years ago. So it's sort of quite nice, actually, going back to it. I'm sorry, what was your question? So, no, what, what, what is your play about? Oh, so mine is a Dickensian mashup. It's called Grim Prospects. <laughs> and, um, and it's all, it's a play within a play. So what I did, I've been doing it for this community, just this is the second time. And because they're all elderly and quite unable to learn lines. So what I did was I invented um, an amateur dramatic group called the Sow's Ear Players. And each thing we do is a rehearsal of those amateur actors. So it means that they can have the script in their hand. So it it's actually looks from the audience a little bit like recording of a radio show. In fact, that would make quite a good play. That's next year. <laughs> That's next year. <laughs> um, so it is, and it's about all the things that happen to the director of an amateur dramatic production. <laughs> and it happened to me yesterday where two members of the cast didn't turn up. We only have eight people in the cast anyway. One just didn't show and one arrived 15 minutes late. So, <laughs> Well, uh, the, the point you made there about learning lines with perhaps members of the cast who are a little bit more long in the tooth. That is a, that, that's a struggle we've had on our show as well. And we've got around that with a few ways. So one of which is, because my show is uh, uh, um, it's called The Haunting of Berg Hill House, Berg Hill being a, a hill in Etchingham. Uh, and it's a spoof of melodramatic Victorian ghost stories, rather in the vein of you know, Susan Hill, obviously not actually a Victorian uh, author, but perhaps has written the Victorian <laughs> ghost story, despite it not being actually Victorian. And all those types of Victorian ghost stories always have the framing device of a sort of older narrator who starts telling a story and then it all kind of goes back in time. So we have a narrator in the show who is reading from his journal and is so he can have the script carefully you know, on stage inside a big leather case that looks like it's an old book that actually he's he's got the most lines but he can he can read them out. The other way I've got around another member of the cast who's an absolutely fantastic funny comic presence on stage but really does struggle with lines is I've written him a part which has got a one-word line, which is Gur, uh, because he's a ruffian type and his uh, his name is Gur, and the only thing he can say is Gur, and so he says that one word in probably every intonation you can think of to put on the word Gur. Very clever. Very and, clever. And can you tell me both a bit about the actual performance? When will it be? I mean, how many performances will your cast do, Dory? <laughs> Just the one. Just the one. Uh, which is a shame, really, because there's a huge amount of work goes into it. So I live in an almshouse and we have, always in mid-December, we have uh, a Christmas party for the residents, the staff and the volunteers who work in our museum and and things like that. So that's basically the audience. And we have to do it in the afternoon because people go to bed very early. (laughs) Uh, You know, our demographic is uh, 65 down to 97. So so we do it, uh, one performance only takes... It's short and sweet, like 30 minutes maximum. Oh, really? We ply them with alcohol before and after in the hope of nice reviews. (laughs) No, 30 minutes, that's very interesting. And and how about yours? Am I right in thinking yours has sold out? It has sold out, I'm very pleased to say. say. Uh, We should have done two nights, really. Could have raised double the amount of money for the Church Fabric Fund, which is where the whole thing is is going. Ours is actually, it's a bit, ours is a um, one hour ten. So it's, it's, it's a, bit, a proper it's a play. Proper, proper, proper. How, how big is the cast? 19, I think. 
It's big. No, and because and we didn't even do the auditioning process. It honestly is. We send out, an, instead of auditioning, just send out an email to everyone who's involved last year saying, do you want to be involved again this year? And everyone said yes. And then other people asked if they could be involved who hadn't been before. So I had to write this script, which involved <laughs> 19. I mean, some of them are silent parts. Some people, some people it's interesting, actually, being Amdram, it, it's a very different situation to working with actors who often famously have big egos. They want tons of lines. The opposite is true with working with amateur dramatics, where, again, people, particularly of a certain age, who's a bit worried about their memories, being able to, to, to hold tons of lines, email very enthusiastically saying, I'd love to be a part, but please, please don't give me too many lines. <laughs> so, you're trying, so it's like the opposite of dealing with professional actors in their egos wanting all the lines. You're trying to write people parts that are still fun and sort of fulfilling and have a good comic moment and everything, but with not that that many lines to work with. Uh, there's a few silent parts. Who, you know, There's a ghost, for example, it being a ghost story, whose only line is, you know, <laughs> so can remember that. Sounds we're manageable. All good. Yeah, sounds manageable. And, and Laurie, just finally, you, you talk in your piece about this gentleman coming to your rescue in your play because one of the characters drops out. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yes, well, I certainly didn't intend this production to be a pantomime, but it's kind of turning out that way. So my leading lady bailed very suddenly. She had good reasons for doing it, but it threw me in a complete spin because we don't have a lot of women. In fact, I didn't have any spare women. There was no one I could go to. And I just, I was at my wit's end. And then I thought, well, hang on, there are all these men. And there was one I thought might be willing to cross-dress. And he absolutely jumped at it. So you just don't know with people. Sometimes the people you think will would love to get up on the stage shudder at the very idea and then people who are, you know often people who are socially shy they're fine when they're being someone else yeah and so yes so uh, this gentleman not only did he say yes but he immediately started designing his costume so. <laughs> <laughs> the, the shyness point is very interesting there's there's a chap who's been involved in the play for a few years now and each year he gets a slightly bigger part and just but just watching how when he first started he absolutely sort of terrified you could tell kind of you almost wonder why he would want to to be on stage he seems so kind of worried by the whole thing uh but it's just completely hitting it out of the park actually in rehearsals this year i mean really clearly enjoying himself like a lot of that shyness has has gone away and that's that is very nice to see can i can i ask you a question though laurie actually if i may which is given that you've done it for for 20 20 years or so as you, as you say and this is my first year doing it. If I wanted to keep doing it and keep writing writing it, uh, what advice would you have? They always say the only thing harder than your first novel is your second novel. No, after, yeah, after all, but so. I think I've already detected signs in you that you are going to keep doing it. <laughs> uh, and it's always, for me, it's always been the same story. It's been a nightmare, an ascending nightmare as we get nearer to the performance. <laughs> Back in Italy, we used to do four or five shows. And then, of course, as soon as it's over, well, I would say within two days, a bit like childbirth, you know, you forget the <laughs> agony and think, oh, well, we'll have another one. And, and you, I know, are already thinking about next year's. I am, I am thinking <laughs> And I will confess that for all that I've just been <laughs> saying, I'm also thinking about oh, next year. Yes. So. Okay, I'll tell you mine if you tell me yours. What's yours? Oh, well, I've actually got several, but I I've rather like the idea of, you remember Heidi High, the holiday camp? Mm. Um, 
soap opera. Yeah. I think we could have a bit of fun with something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Will, what's yours? Well, I know that in her piece, Laurie warns against doing a spoof of the mousetrap, but I, <laughs> but I am writing Agatha Christie pastiche, homage, uh, rip-off job, whatever you want to call it, a spoof called Death on the Dodwell, Dodwell being the, the very popian name of the river that flows through the village of Etchingham, because it's just too, the, the, the kind of cliches of the genre are just too good to not make fun of. I mean, a bit, a bit, a bit like doing a Victorian ghost story, that when you've got these amazing cliches of the genre, they're so close to parody anyway, all you have to do is crank them up by about 10%, and they, they, it, it becomes a joke. Uh, so that, that will, I, I, hope, I hope I will um, have the chance to do that again next year, because Hannah and my wife and I have had huge fun doing it this year. It's been a real, um, uh, it's been a, just a very fun thing to be part of, and we'd love to have another crack at it if people want us back, <laughs> which after the show, I mean, who knows? They may not. Who knows? Well, I hope you both break a leg. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this week, and indeed for this year. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please pick up a copy of The Spectator's special triple Christmas magazine to read all the stories we've discussed and much more. I'm William Moore. And I'm Laura Prendergast, and we wish you a very Merry Christmas. Dear Mary, how can I stop people arguing with me about who I am or who I may be. So many otherwise obviously well-bred souls, usually gentlemen, approach with, no, you can't be, or even, what are you doing here? To which accurate replies might be, oh, yes, I can, and uh, probably the same as you, uh, purchasing vegetables or buying a G&T at the theatre bar. But both responses sound well, rather rude. Please advise... Better to act daft. Reply. How lovely to see you again. What have you been up to since we last met? Stay silent while they answer. In this way, you transfer the embarrassment. <laughs>